let's go to the Lord now in prayer for the preaching of his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and ask your word would judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us attentive hearts and minds. Lord, let us not agree and walk away unchanged. Let us agree with what you're saying and then live differently. Let us hold one another accountable to live differently. Father, there's no better thing that we could put our attention to in these moments than the words you have spoken. Help us to do that. Help us to glorify your Son by the way we listen and obey. Give me grace to hold it together and proclaim Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sometimes what looks like loss and a hopeless agony actually is part of a bigger plan, a maximum plan for life. Sounds kind of abstract. Let me take a very obscure, random example from the deep sea, from the ocean depths, to illustrate what I mean by something that looks like loss and pain, but it's actually in service for good. So this this is something that happens between about 400 to 800 meters deep in the Pacific Ocean. It's so deep, there's no sunlight that gets there. It's darkness. We're talking about a deep sea squid, okay? Certain species of squid. This has a point, I promise. Listen closely to what this squid does to defend itself against attack and try to think to yourself, what's the spiritual connection? Okay? There's a species of deep-sea squid that has a startling defense mechanism to protect its own life. When threatened by a predator, the squid pulls away, breaking off the tip of its own arm and leaving it behind as a diversion. It breaks off its arm just above the point it's been grabbed, and as the arm continues to glow and twitch, the squid makes its escape. Hmm. Nature's fascinating, isn't it? What a brilliant example of escaping attack. It's kind of bizarre and weird, though, isn't it? Hmm. Well, it seems less strange when you consider the big picture that the squid can grow another arm later and be restored over time. It seems strange to us, but that little squid is just following the script that God designed for it. Just following the script. And equally so, as Christians, it might seem odd or strange when a Christian is attacked by sin to forsake the immediate delight sin offers and leave their lustful desire to die in the moment. They leave it behind. This choice looks like nothing but pure loss, losing out on the pleasures of sin, only to be revealed later that what seemed like losing was actually gaining more life later. This is what we're going to be called to in the passage that we're going to look at in 1 Peter today, not disconnecting our body parts and losing them, but being fully aware and cognizant of how we can give up our bodies for God's will. How we give up our bodies to suffer against sin and how we we give up our bodies to serve one another. 
how we use our vessels properly. That's what the passage is about. So turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. This is on page 1016 in the Bible in front of you. 1 Peter, chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. You've already endured the most random, weird part of the sermon about the squid, so it's going to be very godly from here on out, okay? 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. How should we use our human bodies? Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I pray this morning that this passage would equip our mindset It would give us resolve. It would bring resolve to our thinking so that we can be good stewards of our remaining time in the flesh. You don't know how much time you have left in your physical body. You may look outwardly and think, well, I've only got probably a decade left. Or maybe you think, no, I've got four or five decades. I'm young. Well, you're not promised tomorrow. The body that's leaning against the the seat that you're in right now might not be leaning against it in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And it's not to be morbid to say that. It's to say, whatever sins are attacking you right now, use that body to fight against it. These other people that you're gathered with, and even those that aren't here, use that very same body to serve them you're not going to do that unless you're resolved in your mind. Resolved. It's settled in your mind that you're going to do that. It's not going to happen by accident. So I love this passage because it gets us there mentally. It takes us there and it fortifies our thinking. What's the main idea of what Peter's driving at? It would be this. You had to summarize this passage. The Apostle Peter here is describing a self-controlled, sober-minded Christian 
who knows that the end is near. And therefore, in their vessel, in their body, they keep a mindset resolved to fight sin and serve others for the glory of Christ. So two big resolutions for our thinking that we would have resolved this morning that come out of this passage. Two main points. Point number one, be resolved to suffer against sin. Be resolved to suffer against sin. This is verses 1 through 6. Second big idea. Be resolved to faithfully serve one another. This is verses 7 through 11. Be resolved to faithfully serve one another. If you're wondering how those two points rise to the surface, it's pretty clear. Uh, The passage says the word therefore twice. Do you see that? Verse 1 and verse 7. It says the word therefore. And then connected with that therefore statement, it says something about our minds. That's the way Peter has structured this passage. And then in between and underneath, these passions are displayed. Passions for sin and how we avoid them. Passions for serving one another. Peter's giving a bunch of reasons and reality to have a certain type of mindset. And we see that structure there with the word therefore. But why is Peter emphasizing the mind? Shouldn't he be saying your heart instead of your mind? Well, the scripture often uses heart and mind interchangeably. Be transformed with the renewal of your minds. Peter has already told them in chapter 1, verse 13, to prepare their minds for action and be sober-minded, to set their hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to them. And then again, in the last chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, he's told them to be watchful, be sober-minded, because the devil prowls around. And then in our passage this morning, twice, he talks about the mind, getting our mind ready. One of the reasons he does this is because when someone becomes a Christian, they're not beamed up to heaven instantly, are they? They're not teleported up to heaven. Have you ever thought about why God has you here on earth in a physical body? even though you know him and your destination is heaven. Because your body is meant to glorify him in the way you fight sin and serve others. So let's let's walk through this passage. Let's start with point one, be resolved to suffer against sin. We see this in verses one through six. There's the central imperative right there in verse one. Arm yourselves. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So attached and anchored to this command is that words, since therefore Christ suffered. How long did Jesus suffer in his body? His whole life. His entire life. Not just during his ministry, even though that was unique and a special intensity to the fight against sin, suffering against it. But suffering against sin is what Christ did. In the flesh, when Peter uses that word, in the flesh, he's meaning our earthly life, skin and bones. Jesus was a real human. He wasn't a ghost. He was truly human. But he never gave in to sin. A few verses earlier, in chapter 3, verse 18, we're told that Jesus was righteous. It said Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
even more clarity on what righteousness meant was what Peter said earlier in chapter 2, verse 22. He said, Christ committed no sin. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he gave us the purpose of his sacrifice and sinlessness so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. So Christ's suffering in the flesh was a path of accomplishing redemption. It was a path of following God's will. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't an indication that God was displeased with him. The suffering was part of a path of faithful obedience. It makes sense that Christ would do this, right? He's the Son of God. He's dying for us. But what about you and me? We're not Jesus. Why do we need to be living suffering against sin? Well, you are united to him by faith, aren't you? Isn't that what you claim in being a believer? Christians understand that we are united to Christ by faith. So that means there's this conformity to his image. It's a lifelong process. We call it sanctification. It's a big word that just simply means you are becoming more like Christ. Not that you're becoming a God, but that your character displays him more fully, more completely. So if we're becoming more like him, if we claim to be followers of Christ, then that means we're going to have to walk the path he walked. The path of suffering against sin. This is why Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So he's saying, have the same thoughts that Christ had about life and sin and glory and suffering. Have the same thoughts he had in your own minds. Arm yourself means a military language. It means to prepare, especially by equipping, for the process of battle, preparing for battle. This is why the different branches of our military are called the armed services. There's different ways to be armed. And here, Peter is telling us to have the same way of thinking in how we are armed. But didn't Christ fight the battle? What what battle is left? Isn't he the triumphant one? He, He just ended there in verse 22, the chapter before. That Christ is in heaven. He's at the position of highest honor triumph, but he brings them right back down to earth and says, but look at the path that got Christ to that position of honor. It was a path of suffering. And Peter reminds his hearers that there is a battle. He's already said in chapter 2, verse 11, the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul, they wage war against your soul. There's a real battle. So if we're going to have the same resolve that Christ had, we're going to have to follow the logic that Peter follows here and the reasonings and the realities that he displays. This battle's been going on since the Garden of Eden, right? Our first parents. Remember Cain when he killed his brother Abel? God forewarned him. He said, Cain, your sin is crouching at the door ready to take you over. You must resist it. Cain did not heed the call to have armed thinking. And he just gave in to his sin. 
want that to happen to you today. I don't want you to just sit back and think, okay, sure, I need to be armed in my thinking. I need to think the way Christ thought. What does that even mean? And this is why I love the Bible, because when it calls us to do something, it then lays it out really clearly how and why we do that. So let's, let's look at these verses here. After verse, verse 1, the first half of it, there's, there's three things that help us solidify our resolve. These are the things that are going to convince us to suffer against sin. First, what do Christians do with sin? Second, what do Gentiles, pagans, those who don't know God, what do they do with sin? And then thirdly, God. What does God do with sin? How does he deal with it? These are the three categories as we walk through verses 1 through 6. Well, firstly, Christians. Ask yourself if what's described here is the way you live. And if not, live this way because this is how a Christian ought to live in dealing with sin. It's verse, verse 1 there, the second half, through verse 2. It says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is a glorious cause and effect here. This is the benefit of suffering against sin, is that you cease from sin. Is this a call to asceticism? Is this a call to real sinlessness? It sounds like it, doesn't it? Does this verse mean if you're willing to suffer, you will then be sinless? I mean, after all, it says, cease from sin. You might be wondering. Well, we know from other scriptures, like 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. Psalm nineteen twelve. who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So you're always going to be sinning between now and and your final breath. But you may be sinning in ways that you're unaware of. They're hidden from you. That's no excuse. We need to take this verse to heart. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So they can live for the will of God. I don't want to be too presumptuous. There might be some of you here who are not Christians. You don't follow Christ. You're here. Maybe a friend invited, invited you. Uh, what is sin? You hear Christians throw that word around a lot. Pastors say it. Church members say it. Sin. Well, sin has to do with what we do in relation to God's moral law. What a moral agent, a being, would do in relation to what God has said. Sin is wrong. Sin is bad. It's more than that, though. Sin is any kind of word, deed, thought, attitude, motive where a heart forsakes or ignores or rebels against following God's moral law. It's when a person doesn't conform to God's holy character. So, this verse says there's a way to cease from sin. Isn't that what you want, Christian? Isn't what you want to take whatever sin is weighing on you, whatever sin that you feel like you've been battling against year after year maybe? Isn't your desire this morning, if we're honest, to be done with sin? If that's not your heart, this verse doesn't have much for you. 
But if you are interested to know how to cease from sin, then, then this has your attention, doesn't it? What does that word mean, cease from sin? Well, it could be translated, you're through with sin. You're done with it. You see that it holds nothing but fleeting pleasure. Peter knows that the scattered Christians who are reading this, under the trial and difficulty they face, sin looks so good. There are certain ways that we can sin and use our bodies to relieve our suffering temporarily, have some ease and some comfort. And he's wanting to equip them that they will fight against that. The bait and the allure of sin is so strong under their suffering. But a willingness to suffer, what this verse means, cease from sin, a willingness to suffer proves that we're through with sin. We see through it. There's some biblical examples of this. Genesis 39, Potiphar. Potiphar has a wife who makes seductive advances on Joseph. And day after day, Joseph resists Potiphar's advances. And he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's seeing right through the temptation to what God thinks of it. He sees that it's just a fleeting pleasure. Or we can think of Moses in Hebrews 11.25. It tells us that choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, Moses had faith. Scripture tells us there is some pleasure to sin, but it's fleeting. It's like trying to catch the wind. It just goes through your hands. So men like Joseph and Moses and other patriarchs of the faith and prophets, there's so many examples we could go to, but Peter goes to Christ. Christ is the example that you need to fix in your mind and take his way of thinking. Love what he loves, hate what he hates, think his thoughts after him. Try to start seeing the world and sinful opportunities the way Christ would see them. Make this resolve. What about you? Are you done with what sin has to offer you? Is that your attitude and your posture? If it is, that's an armed way of thinking. What about for us today? Fill in the blank with your own life. But God, if I don't give in to this, you, you fill in the blank. I don't know your heart. I don't know what sin constantly is trying to get you in its clutches. To not give in to blank feels like, ah, God, I'm suffering. What is that for you? You're on to something there. If you don't give in to this sin, it feels like I'm suffering. That's the link. That's what Peter's drawing out and making clear. There is a link between not giving in to sin and feeling like you're suffering because you're forsaking the immediate good feeling the lasting good feeling of following God's will and pleasing him and not tasting the destruction that comes immediately after sin. So if you feel like you're suffering when you don't give in, good. There's so much theological truth packed into this verse, verse 1 and 2. If I could put it in my own words for you this morning, I would say this. The blood supply of temptation is cut. The artery of sin is cut and it just bleeds out 
in front of you when you are willing to suffer against that sin. Wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying that it's now just our own strength that keeps us from sinning? Because it sounds like it. Whoever's willing to grit their teeth the most, they're going to be the most holy people. Not exactly. You need truth when you suffer against sin. Isn't that how Christ did it? When Christ resisted temptation, he would quote scripture. So there's two things that have to be connected. Some Christians think, you know what, I'm going to be holy because I've just memorized a lot of scripture. And I can think about it whenever I want. That's good, that's godly, that's great. Keep doing that. Don't ever stop doing that. But when temptation comes, they've never thought about how they need to be prepared and armed. And it's going to feel really uncomfortable to hold on to those scriptures when sin comes, so they give up. But then there's other Christians who think, no, I'm pretty self-willed, I'm pretty strong-willed. I don't need to memorize all that scripture stuff. I can do it in my own strength. And so when temptation comes, they, they resist maybe for just a little bit, and then they give in. What's the problem on either extreme? The problem is the Christian who knows the word but doesn't have their mind armed to suffer has nothing to keep them holding on. The Christian who wants to suffer but doesn't have the word has nothing to hold on to. Be a Christian who has armed thinking using the scripture you've placed in your heart so that when you've hidden his word in your heart, you might not sin. That's going to suffer and feel bad when you're not giving in. But that's, that's the path. That's the path Christ took. This works. God's word really will re-script your life if you live this way. Doesn't it feel like suffering when your spouse has said something and you just want to lash out in anger? Doesn't it feel like suffering because you don't get the last word in? Good, it should feel like suffering in that moment because you're forsaking that good feeling of giving in. But you've got to have scripture to hold on to to do that. Doesn't it feel like suffering when there's some temptation to, to pornography or some other type of lust and somebody doesn't give in? If you ever hear another Christian say to you, I just don't have the willpower, tell them, you need to arm your thinking. If you're about to go into a battle and somebody says, I'm not strong enough, is that just going to make the battle go away? No, that person needs to be that much more resolved then. Praise be to Christ that he gives us the resolve when we, we can't, when we fail. We see here, This is how a Christian deals with sin. They struggle against it. Secondly, though, verses 3 and 4, what does a Gentile do? Somebody who doesn't know God, how do they handle sin? If a Christian is somebody who says, okay, I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Christ, God help us in that resolve, that's countercultural, what what does the culture do? Well, verse 3 shows us. This sounds a lot like a college campus, doesn't it? Peter is describing here the landscape of activity of the Gentile heart, one who is not living in accordance with God's will. Verse 3, for the time that's passed suffices, meaning it's already been enough time. You've already done enough of these things. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, 
living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Why is Peter pointing this out? Didn't they already know this? I don't need to school you on a lesson of what those who don't know God love to do. Because A, you see it and you live in that world. And B, you were one of those people before you knew God. There's something unique, though, about this list. Peter doesn't say things like anger, greed, slander, envy, hypocrisy. He goes after those sins that seem to offer so much pleasure. These are the type of sins that offer some kind of escape and relief from life's difficulties. Life is hard, is it not? And these Christians who he's writing to needed to be especially armed in their thinking towards those sins that would promise immediate relief. We all turn to something to escape the pressures and anxieties and stresses of life. Maybe you're not doing these things. Maybe you're entertained by these things. I don't know. But he's saying that the time's already passed for you to do these. So whether you became a Christian last year, whether you became a Christian and had 20 or 30 years of, of not following Christ and then you came to know him, or whether you've been a believer since you were young and you can't remember all the different ways you were sinning, you've already sinned enough, no matter which person you are. You don't need to go back and test out some sins just to beef up your testimony. You've already done enough of it. Notice the resolve, though, against sin that the pagans don't have. It says there, look at those two words before the word sensuality. It says living in. Somebody who doesn't know God lives in these things, makes a practice of them. These are consistent throughout their life. And they do this willingly. Did you see right before that? It says this is what they want to do. It shows that the heart is intimately connected with the mind. It compels the mind to act and rationalize and decide on things. And what's so striking about this list here in verse 3 is those first three sins, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, those can be done individually, can't they? You don't need any help. But those other three sins seem to be more group-oriented. Just like there's a variety of ways to serve God and love Him, there's a variety of ways to sin against Him. I don't know what it is for you, whether it's more individual or more group stuff. right here. It's a pretty good list of ways to not follow God's will. Sensuality, that's the, if you're wondering what what is sensuality and passions, I don't want to assume that you just you automatically know what those words mean. Sensuality, this is the unbridled excess of sensory experiences. It's what goes beyond God's design. So you could even say something like gluttony. Or, it's not just with food, it could be any sensory experience. Here's a quiz for you. If if one of your church members says, "Man, it was it was so hot outside. I took a cold shower, and I just stayed in that cold shower, and I didn't go to work, and I just neglected all my responsibilities, and I just stayed in there. It felt so good, and I had one of my family members bring me a an icy because it's just so hot. My AC is not working. True or false?" Is that Christian sinning? 
there's actually a biblical category for sin called sensuality, where you let a sensory experience go beyond to the point to where you start neglecting God's will and your responsibilities because you just you love the way something feels. Food, anything. So it's food, sex, substances, they're all in view here. Passions, these are more of those, those lusts, those evil desires and impulses. As much as we see the party life here, this often happens in ways that aren't just some overt party that you get an invitation to. But the Christian has a willingness to suffer against these sins, to see how fleeting they are. It sees, the Christian sees the destruction they cause. The Christian sees how somebody's body is just hijacked with the pleasure of a sensory experience, with no knowledge of God, no thankfulness to God for the good delights that we can enjoy. What's the result? What happens? Verse 4 tells us, these same Gentiles, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So this is not the kind of maligning where a Gentile, a pagan, somebody who doesn't follow God, just shouts at you and says, I'm going to have fun, and you're not having fun, and they shout out, YOLO, you only live once, that kind of thing. That's deeper than that. You could shout back to them, actually, you live twice. You're not just living once. It's not, it's not trying to start a shouting match. He says there, you're maligned. And there's a lot of stinging depth to that word. Some of you might have been Christians long enough that a lot of your non-Christian friends aren't asking you to participate in some things that you used to. Pray for our young believers in our midst. Pray for our college students. There's a certain maligning and, and almost a blasphemy that takes place when, when you don't celebrate and participate in what everybody else is doing. Gentiles are surprised. They think, how could anybody not want to do this? They have no alternative to worship God and follow his will. This is it. This is the end-all, be-all of life. Just get as much out of it as you can. And there's a double suffering. Not only do we suffer because we don't give in, but we suffer because we we're attacked verbally. So even though they're judging you and maligning you, and maybe they don't even say something, they just think, man, how strange and weird this Christian. Even though they're judging you, the good news is they're about to be judged. I say good news because God makes everything right. So thirdly, in this category of, of sin, look at what God does with sin, verse 5 and 6. He's the judge. He's ready to judge. Peter's already said in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 17, God's an impartial judge. But here in our passage, verse 5, they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Because God is good, he punishes all sin. Romans 5.12 tells us, Just as sin came into the world through one man, so death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is the punishment God places upon sin. This verse, verse 6, has caused some controversy. Some think, oh, here's an example of 
after you die, you get to hear the gospel, and then everything's okay. There's some plausible and implausible views about verse 6. You see where it says, right there in verse 6, preached even to those who are dead? Does this mean those who, they've lived their life, they've died, now they get to hear about who Jesus is and have a chance to respond? Is that what it means? It can't mean that. There's so many other scriptures that disallow that. There was a sermon just a few weeks ago uh, that we, we heard from 1 Peter 3 that touched on that idea as well. We know that it's, it's not that because it would just nullify everything Peter's been saying to live holy and suffer against sin and not give in if you can just live however you want and hear the gospel after you die. He's, he's not saying there's a second chance to hear the gospel. So what is he saying? What is a plausible view? Well, some would think that this is just a spiritualizing. He's talking about dead men walking right now, those who are spiritually dead living on this earth. But that's not convincing because there in verse 5, he contrasts living and dead. And even in verse 3, those who live in these things, living and dead, he's talking about real life, real life, real death. And there's no grammatical clue or signal that somehow in verse 6, he's now talking about spiritual things and not physical things. So we can be convinced that verse 6 is those who have actually died. It's helpful in English to put the word now in front of the word dead. Listen how verse 6 reads with that. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does preached even to those who are now dead. This could have been martyrs. This could have just simply been Christians who have died. And people are wondering, well, how did the gospel benefit their life? One of the ways that a non-believer would malign a Christian would say, oh, you believe in the gospel? Well, you got sick and died just like my friend who lived a crazy party life. And Peter's helping them have hope. That death moment, he's, he's pulling the curtain back on death. He's showing, actually, those who believe the gospel live. He says that there at the end of verse 6, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is why we read about the gospel earlier in our service. Because the gospel is the only way to live through the judgment of God. It is not based on your good works. We often don't have armed thinking against sin. We often give in. And Peter's helping them understand, verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached. And then he answers it at the end of verse 6. So that we might live the way God does. Don't think that your battle against sin is the determining factor earns you a place with God. You've fought so well, your merit has impressed God and he's going to let you into heaven. It's always the gospel. It's always been the gospel. You trust in that Christ lived in your place. If you're not a believer this morning, this is your hope. It's not you've partied more than other people. You give in to the flesh more than others so God doesn't like you. That's not 
the good that you could start doing right now can't erase the bad you've already done. That's true for the Christian and the non-believer. The gospel is what gets us through God's judgment. God will judge sin. It says there, all will give account to him. All sin is accounted for because he's a good God. Nothing escapes his gaze. He's a ready judge because he's watching and he's involved. He's not just sitting back waiting for some report when you die about how you live because he was ignorant of how you live. He's ready. But here's where Peter turns the corner. If we stopped here, it could seem like the Christian life is just try not to have fun and enjoy things that could be immediately pleasurable and just tremble because judgment's coming. So Peter turns the corner here. In verses 7 through 11, he says, not just what you don't do, but here's what you do. You have a resolve to faithfully serve one another. This is what you should do with your body. So point number two, big idea, be resolved to faithfully serve one another, to prefer one another. It sounds kind of like a doomsday verse there in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. He's just pointing out in the flow of redemptive history, creation has happened, the flood, all these different covenants. Christ has come. The new covenant is inaugurated. Christ died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended. All these different things have happened in redemptive history. There's one thing left that needs to happen. Christ returning. The consummation of all things. His kingdom coming to its goal. So he's saying this is the end of all things. It's at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That sober-mindedness, this is the alert, clear, reactive thinking to the things of God. How would you have ended verse 7? Look at at verse 7. Put your eyes there. If the word prayers was not listed at the end of verse 7, what word would you assume would have been put there? The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of fighting sin, for the sake of your witness, for the sake of you know, figure out, figuring out ways to bless your church. He says, do these things for the sake of prayer. If we read this passage too quick, we would miss that. The reason we fight against sin, even though we're, we're wanting to glorify God in what others see, it's to serve our walk with God. Our prayers. Our prayers. This is the Bible's code language here for your walk with God when it says prayers. Yes, how you pray for other people, but it's how you pray to the Lord. This is why we're sober-minded. And this comes before serving others. So he's about to lay out three different one another's, verse 8, 9, 10. But prayer comes before that. If you're feeling burnt out from serving others, perhaps it's you're, you're flying past this aspect of prayer and a, a walk with God. Prayer. So let's close our time looking at these different one another's and how we can be resolved to serve one another. How can I prefer the other? prefer others. It seems kind of like a vast thing. Well, here he tells us specifically, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. 
Verse 10, serve one another. These one another's, living these out, are the evidence that you have resolved in your mind to use your body for God's will. You have a regard for one another. He's already called them to love many times in this book. Chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 8. Three times he's already said to love and have a brotherly love. Here we get this sweet motivation attached. Love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know what that means? Well, the first half of the verse informs what that means. Love one another earnestly. It's not emotional intensity per se. It's a consistent, enduring, firm love. He's actually alluding to Proverbs 10:12, which said, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So when he says love covers a multitude of sins, is he meaning, oh, I sin a lot, but if I love a lot, it's going to hide all the sin that I'm doing? Or this person sins a lot, and I'm loving them well, so I'm going to hide all their sins from everybody else. What does he mean that love covers sins? This is the way James ended the book of James in chapter 5. I like how one commentator put it. They said that this earnest love, this, this enduring, firm, faithful, consistent love, has a forbearance that doesn't let the wrongs done within the Christian community come to their fullest and worst expression. The downward spiral is broken when someone in loving forbearance breaks the cycle of acting on hard feelings. In other words, your love for others is going to grow cool really quickly when they sin against you if you don't have earnest love for them. But if you love them earnestly, it covers over their sins. It doesn't hide them and make their sinning okay. It's not that. It's just that their sinning doesn't keep you from loving them. It doesn't destroy the relationship. That's what Peter wants. For these Christians hearing this, they're scattered in the provinces of the Roman Empire, way out on the corner, modern-day Turkey. They were probably small, rural communities. They knew everybody. They would see one another sin. They would see one another sin against them. They had to have earnest love, or they wouldn't want to gather together. They wouldn't want to serve together. But it's not just love hospitality. One, one other thing I could say about love, I have to say this. Think about the person in this church, Park Hills Baptist Church, that has sinned against you the most. I know you don't normally go that way in your thinking because you don't keep a record of sin. Who is it that's hardest to love in this church? I'm not saying abstractly. Think of their name right now. And if you're a new person, you might think, well, everybody is easy to love. Whoever that person is in your mind who's hardest to love, take verse 9 into your prayers before God for that person. Pray that God will give you an earnest love for them so that if they sin against you, your love covers over that. and You keep sinning and you keep loving, not sinning. Hospitality, though. Let's move on to verse 9. Hospitality said do it without grumbling this is a love of strangers or welcoming people into your home at this time there wasn't hotels there wasn't a lot of church buildings hospitality was vital to keeping their church together so 
Peter's calling them not just to love one another, but to have hospitality to one another. This is a ministry over meals and, and fellowship together in a home. No grumbling. The grumbling would come if they didn't have the earnest love. They would just be thinking about how inconvenient it is. If you picture the table in your kitchen, whether you have an apartment, a home, whatever, picture your, your kitchen table right now. If your kitchen table could talk, what would it say about the church members that have come to have fellowship at your table? Some of you have tables that could share all kinds of things because you are very hospitable. Some of you have kitchen tables that have never heard the voice of another church member. Be hospitable. What is it that causes you to grumble? Confess that to another brother or sister. Let's be hospitable. Verse 10, serve one another. He's talking about spiritual gifts here. There's a list in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. We've all received gifts. Notice there he says, as each has received a gift, God has promised that we all have a gift. He says, use it. It's possible to know how you're gifted and not use your gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards. Our gifts are discovered in the doing of them. They're not discovered by by sitting back and twiddling our thumbs, thinking about, I wonder how I'm gifted. I love one of our church members, Gary Talent. He didn't know I was going to mention his name today. He faithfully serves one another, people in his midst, doing IT stuff and computer stuff all the time, setting up the chairs and the hymnals and getting ready for Sunday night. I love how he's being a good steward of his time. And I want to call you to think about how you might serve others. I think we do a pretty good job while we're all here gathered together, but what about those that we don't see and when we're not gathered here? Those who are shut in or ill, they're sick. Are we writing cards? Are we calling? Are we texting? Are we emailing? Are we visiting? That's an act of service. Steward your gifts for those folks. There's two broad categories he mentions here in verse 10, speaking and service. He says if you're going to speak, if that's the way you're gifted, do it in a way that you speak the oracles of God. In other words, understand that you have to restrain merely your own human speculation and opinions. Instead, you have to speak things in accordance with God's word. And if you serve, without your words, it's more hands-on service, you still have to rely on God, just like the person who speaks relies on God's words. You have to rely on God for the strength to do it. So woven in between speaking and serving is this idea that We have to pray to God for strength and for insight so that we're relying on him and not us. There's a temptation here to serve in our own strength. As a way of application, I want to commend this idea to you. Use your church directory not just to pray, but as a window into those who you could be serving. Look at it that way. He closes there in verse 11. He talks about God's glory. He says everything is for God's glory. All of this service, all of this loving one another and hospitality to one another. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's not a glory for our church. It's not what your service is about. Not for your own namesake, not for the next generation who's going to come. It's for the Lord's glory. So this passage helps us see that if we properly use our bodies, it's to give glory to God. That's what we want. What's so great about how he ends verse 11 is he says it, it's dominion and glory to God. How long? Forever and ever. It doesn't ever end with just your life. The glory keeps going on for eternity. I want to invite you into the the life of God's kingdom where you use your body for his glory. How you fight sin, how you serve others. Are you awake? Are you sober-minded? Are you resolved to do that? Even now, if you feel like, I'm not, I'm not really convinced and resolved I'm going to do this, go back to this passage. Pray through it. Ask God to make your life, your vessel, your time on earth and your body to look like his. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for this call. Give us resolved minds to fight sin and faithfully, as good stewards, serve one another. Forgive us, Lord, for doing any of these things in our own strength. Forgive us of despairing. Forgive us of not giving you glory in these things. Equip us, Lord, by your word. Help us to sing now and prefer one another, even as we sing for your glory. In Christ's name.